Hey guys, welcome to the Thrive Church Podcast. I'm Judah Thomas, the lead pastor, and we thank you for joining us today as we discover what God's Word has to say to us. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd encourage you to leave a rating, review, share it with your friends or family, and we hope you enjoy today's message. It's am I following? Am I following? And, and this is just such an important thing because so many times people, we call ourselves Christians... But we're not really actually following Jesus. Maybe you've known somebody like this. Maybe that's what turned you off uh, to church altogether, is that you saw people who who call themselves Christians, but you're like, you know what, I don't want to be like them. You know, anyone know somebody like that? Don't, don't elbow anybody, you know. But, but sometimes we know people like that. We're like, man, you call yourself a follower of Christ, but... But I don't, I'm not convinced that you're actually following Jesus. You know, we, we, we talked about how all of Jesus' followers, they started out as doubters and as sinners. They all started out that way. In fact, it was a prerequisite. In order to follow Jesus, you had to be a sinner. You had to be, had to be a doubter. And, and so many times we think, oh, i got to clean up my act before I can come and follow Jesus. But in fact, what we've been discovering is that there's an invitation open to all of us. Regardless of where we are in our life currently, it's an invitation, regardless of what you even believe about Jesus, it's an invitation to follow. In fact, if we look at Jesus' disciples, most of them didn't even believe that he was the Messiah for quite some time. In fact, many of them didn't even believe it until after he died and came back to life again. And how much faith does that take? I mean, if you see a guy predict his own death, then die, then come back to life again, I think we'd all sign up for that, right? I mean, we're like, okay, I believe. But, but they didn't just, just believe right from the beginning, In fact, all throughout it, Jesus was challenging them, asking them why they didn't believe. So so maybe in your life you have questions. Maybe at times you have doubts. And sometimes we don't like to vocalize those doubts because we're like, "If, if people know that I have doubts, maybe they'll think less of me. Maybe they won't think that I'm a real Christian, whatever that is. And so, so all of us, regardless of these things, we're invited to follow Jesus, regardless of your lifestyle, regardless of the amount of faith you have, regardless of your obedience, regardless of how much you know about the Bible, regardless about, about any of these things, you've been invited to follow Jesus. But here's the thing. Most people... When we come to Christ, well, it's kind of like this. When I was a kid, I came to Christ at a very early age. And you know what, what probably the, the main reason that I, I came to be a follower of Christ at an early age was? You know what the main reason? It wasn't so much that I wanted to follow Jesus. It's that I was afraid of a place called hell. And I was hoping that, well, God says he had a place called heaven. And I was like, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. So, so I'm kind of just doing this for me. I was doing it as a consumer. And some of us, that's why we follow God. Or, or we follow God because we're like, somebody said, if you follow God, everything will be better in your life. Anyone ever heard something like that? If you follow God, you'll, you'll meet a beautiful person. You'll make more money. You'll get great grades in school. All you do is you just follow God and trust him, and everything is going to be amazing. And we follow God as, as a consumer because we say, oh, it, 
I'm going to follow him because I feel like it's going to help me out. Now, it's true that if you follow God, if you follow Jesus, if you follow his teachings, you will be a better person. I mean, even if you don't believe that he was the son of God, if you just follow the principles that he taught, you'll be a better person. You'll be a better husband. You'll be a better wife. You'll be a better student. You'll be a better you know, employer, uh, employer or an employer. It just works. And all of Jesus' followers started out that way. Started out as a consumer asking this question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Last week, uh, Chris was talking, and he, he talked about how Peter and, and Jesus, they were, and all the disciples are having this conversation, and Jesus starts like really kind of saying, you know what? The wheels are about to fall off. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get killed. I'm gonna get crucified and all this stuff. And Peter, like, he's like, hold on, we gotta put the brakes on here. We gotta keep things positive. People are happy, people are excited. We don't wanna start talking about you, our leader, dying. We gotta stay positive. And, and look what it says here in Mark chapter 8, verse 32. You can follow along on the screens if you have the U version app, you can follow along live with us there. In Mark 8, 32, he says, as, as he, this is Jesus, as Jesus talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and did what? Began to reprimand him. Now, I, I would think it takes a lot of guts to reprimand the Messiah, right? It's like, you obviously don't know what's going on here. You're obviously doing this wrong. Peter starts to reprimand him for saying such things. Verse 33, Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples. Then he reprimanded Peter. He says, get away from me, Satan. That's a great nickname for him. He says, get away from me, Satan. You're not see- you are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. How often do we do that? We see things from a human point of view. We see things from our point of view, but not from God's point of view. We see things like, like oh, if I follow God, then, then everything will be great for me. And, and it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. I, I just want a God that I can believe in, that, that I can kind of like keep him in my back pocket when I need some help. You know, maybe he'll come out and help me. And, and, and then later on, we see Jesus talking about how... Um, He's talking to this rich young ruler. This guy, he's got a lot of money. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus is saying how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for the rich people. And sometimes we look at that and we're like, wow, yeah, you know, it's really hard for rich people. Well, here's the deal. If you make more than $35,000 a year, if you make more than $35,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the earners in our world. Did you know that? The top 1%. So stop complaining. You're like, oh man, I only make $50,000 a year. Well, you're like in the top half of a percent now. If you make $35,000 a year in the top 1%, you know, it would take someone that lives in Zimbabwe, it would take them 34 years to earn the amount of money that you make in one year. 34 years it would take them. Did you know that your monthly income alone could pay the salary of 131 doctors in Kazakhstan? 131 doctors off of, off of your monthly salary. So, so when Jesus says it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, we just need to assume that he was talking about us. Because we are the richest people in the world. And, and so Jesus is saying all this stuff, and then the rich person, Jesus says, you know, you need to go and you need to give what you have to the poor. You need to serve the poor. And the man turns away and he leaves. And then look, look, look what Peter 
says in Matthew 19, verse 27. Peter said to him, we've given up everything to follow you. Then what does he ask? What will we, what will we get? What will we get? I've given up everything. What, what about me? What about me? Don't forget me, Jesus. What, what am I going to get? What's in it for me? He's more concerned about, about what's in it for him. What's in it for me? Later on, we see Jesus, he gets you know, arrested. And all the disciples, what do they do? All the disciples, what do they do? They abandon him. They took off. <laughs> like Nothing's in it for me now. Nothing's in it for me other than prison and maybe death. Man, he's gone, and so I'm out of town. These guys unfollowed him really quick. They're like, we're done. I'm out of here. A couple of them tried to linger around. Peter tried to, tried to follow a little bit more, but then he denied everything. You know, these guys, they were out of there because there's nothing in it for me. They were approaching it as a consumer. What's in it for me? Now, ultimately, they all came back. And these, these disciples who once were cowards, they now went into the world preaching the gospel to people all over and, and started churches and started, you know, all these things. And ultimately, we are a result of, of their preaching. But for a while there, they were just in it to be a consumer. But see, when they started preaching, they were, they were now preaching. They were willing to die, not for what Jesus taught, but for what they saw happen. They saw him when he came back to life again. Not for a crucified Jesus. They weren't serving a crucified Jesus, because if Jesus never came back to life again, they would have scattered and never rebanded. But they were preaching for a resurrected Christ. They gave up their personal agendas, and, and, and it took them a while to get to this point. But that's eventually where they became. They weren't consumers anymore. They were followers. But not everybody made the, tr- the transition. There was one disciple in particular who many of us know about, and he didn't make that transition. His name was Judas. And, and, you know, with my name, Judah, it gets, it gets confused all the time. People are like, hey, Judas. And I'm like, why in the world do you think my parents would name me Ju- Judas? Anyhow, my name's Judah. It's, a, it's an H, not an S. But um, anyhow, Judas, he went into this thing as a consumer. See, they were looking for a Messiah. A Messiah was someone that would come and save them. And, and they were, you know, Israel, the people of Israel, were under the Roman Empire at the time. It was like if, if we got invaded by, say, China. And now China is now ruling over us, and we're Americans, but we're being ruled by this other country. And so Judas, you know, he was looking at these things, and, and they're looking for a Messiah who will come and remove the Roman rule, make Israel a world power again. And so they're saying, maybe it's Jesus. Maybe Jesus is the one. He speaks with authority. He speaks unlike anyone we've ever heard. But Jesus was kind of a, kind of a means to an end. It's like, well, well, if Jesus rises to power, and I'm associated with Jesus, then I'll rise to power too. I mean, it seems to make sense, right? You know, if I'm, if I'm in close with him and he makes it to the top, I'll be like maybe second or third from the top. I'll be right up there, you know, and, and I'll be someone of importance and influence as well. But here was the problem. In order to overthrow the Roman Empire, you had to hate the Romans. But Jesus didn't hate the Romans. In fact, there was a centurion that came to him and, and needed someone healed, and Jesus healed this person. I mean, man, this must have just grated against Judas. You know, these are the guys we need to overthrow, not heal them. They're better off dead. 
He said, Jesus, you need to, to make friends with the religious leaders. You need them. Because what were the religious leaders? They were the ones who would get up and proclaim, we've investigated this person and he is in fact the Messiah and he's going to lead us into this new era. But what was Jesus doing? Jesus was publicly humiliating the religious leaders. Ostracizing the very people that Judas would have thought that you need to, to get on your side. Jesus never built a war chest, never saved up money so that they could overthrow this Roman Empire. And, and this, this drove Judas over the brink, over the edge. And now there's probably a little bit of Judas in all of us. It's like, well, what, what, can, I, what can I get out of my relationship with Christ? Why do we come to church to, to begin with? Some people, you know, maybe you just recently started coming to church, and you're like, man, if I go to church for like six times... And if I say a prayer before each meal, and if I call my mom once a week, and if I do it, then God will bless everything that I do, and it's like, like a magic formula, and everything will be great in my life. Well, unfortunately, that's not how it works. But sometimes we think, if I do this formula, then God will notice me. Like, oh, hey, I noticed you called your mom. <laughs> you know, I'm going to bless you now. And that's not how it works, because we often come as a consumer. Now, don't get me wrong, it's okay to start there. We all start there as a consumer at some point in time. And, and some of us, you know, uh, stay there longer than others. But at some point, our agenda and God's agenda is going to conflict. At some point, it's going to conflict. It's going to be different. And what you do in that moment says a lot about you and how you're following Jesus. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 26 starting in verse 6. It says, While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Now, this is kind of a tough nickname, right? It's like Simon the leper. Simon the guy that had leprosy. Now, now we're assuming that he doesn't have leprosy anymore because they weren't allowed to be around someone that had leprosy, but somehow the nickname stuck. You know, some people say, well, maybe it was Lazarus. Some people, you know, they say all kinds of things. We don't really know who it was, but at some point in his life, he had leprosy. And we're assuming that he was, he was healed, and if not, then, then I don't know. Then everybody else is going to probably get it at that time. But they're in that, that home of Simon the leper. Verse 7, a woman came to him, to Jesus, with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, before we go on, let's just think about how awkward this would be, right? You know, we're all together, we're having a picnic, right? You know, and we're all together, and let's just, let's just say, um, just take me for example, we're all there sitting and we're chatting, having some hot dogs, and a girl comes up with perfume and like pours it on my head, and like starts rubbing it in. You know, in other parts of the gospel, it talks about, about you know, uh, women, like, kissing his feet and, like, rubbing the, the perfume in with their hair on their feet. I'm like, man, like, is this really appropriate, Jesus? Like, like come on, you're making us all feel a little bit awkward right now. I mean, what, wouldn't that, am I the only person that would feel awkward? Anybody else feel a little awkward? Okay, like, two of you. Maybe you guys pour perfume on each other all the time. I don't know. Good luck with that. Um, it says this woman came in with this expensive perfume and she dumps it on Jesus' head. She's like, here, I'm putting it in. She's like probably rubbing it in and he's got perfume dripping down his face and, and all this. Now when the disciples saw this in verse 8, it says they were indignant. They were like, this is awkward. I'm a little bit ticked off. And they say, why this waste? They asked. 
This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. This, this perfume was expensive. We don't know, some people say it was, you know, six months wages, a couple years wages. It was, it was very expensive. And they took this and they poured it on Jesus' head. And they're like, why this waste? You could have done something better with it. Plus the fact that we all feel really awkward right now. We smell the perfume. You ever smelled something that has too much perfume? Yeah, I mean, imagine, like, all of that in one room. Everybody's like, we can hardly breathe now. And, and we feel awkward. And uh, why did you do that? It's like, imagine if you went over to somebody's house for dinner. And, and as you're sitting down to dinner, they break out a, a $500 bottle of wine. And they put it on the table. Now, imagine how this would kind of kill the mood, right? And they say, you know, I got this bottle of wine. It costs $500. And they crack it open. They get, pour you a glass. And you're like, how much did this cost? Why would you serve this? You know, this could have been sold and given to the poor. Man, I mean, that, that's going to make the whole environment a little awkward now, don't you think? It's like, well, what else are you going to criticize us about? You know, what else are you, what are, are you looking at here? What else are you going to judge us about? So they're saying, oh, this is just so wasteful. But here's the interesting thing. In, in the book of John, John tells the same story. But, but he tells a detail that Matthew left out. So in John chapter 12, verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume is worth a year's wages. It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. You know, I, I kind of picture this like, like, it's not like they were all, like they all probably felt awkward, and then Judas like elbows like Bartholomew said, Hey Bart, how much do you think that cost? Bart's like, I don't know. Judas like, I bet it costs like a year's worth. And, and Bartholomew's like, yeah, maybe so. That's a lot of money. And Judas, you know, elbows, you know, Nathaniel's like, hey, man, you only think we could have done something better with that? Maybe we could have sold it and given it to the poor or something. And Nathaniel's like, yeah, seems like a good idea. And so, so Judas is kind of like spreading this division amongst the other disciples. But verse 6 says, not that he cared about the poor. Judas didn't really care about the poor, for he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some of it for himself. So now we see the real motive. He's like, you know, what, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Oh, we could take that and give it to the poor. Well, I'm thinking we get a year's salary in our war chest, and man, now I got some more money, some more spending money, and go out and, you know, get myself a new donkey or something, and whatever they bought. And, and so Judas was really being motivated as a consumer. So he's, he's spreading this division. Judas was the treasurer. He was the one that kept the money. Probably volunteered for that job. He's like, oh, I, I can count it real good, and I can make sure you don't count it because I'm taking some of it. But Jesus, he knew the hearts of men. And that, we see that all through. So Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And I find it intriguing how people will start thinking things, and Jesus would just like answer their questions before they even said it out loud. And, and it, it says here in Matthew 26, verse 10, uh, it says, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. Isn't that wild? that we're like fulfilling that prediction right now. We're talking about this gesture that was done in you know, a small Middle Eastern village 
2,000 years ago? How did he know that? How did he know that, that this story would get retold throughout the world? What did Jesus know about the world? He never traveled more than 30 miles from his hometown. I mean, he walked everywhere. He didn't know what the whole world was, at least from the outside appearance, it didn't seem like it. And, and 2,000 years later, here we are. Here we are telling the story again. So skipping on to, to Matthew 26, starting in verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. See, Judas had had enough now. He's like, that's it. I had enough. You know, you, you're, you're taking this perfume, you put it on you, it, you're talking about death a lot, that's not what a Messiah talks about, and, and I don't like where this is going right now. And if you're not going to really do this, if you're not going to overthrow the Romans, then I'm done, I'm out of here. Because I'm just in it for me. So he goes to the, to the, uh, to the priest and, and tries to bargain with him. says, you know, I'm going to help you get Jesus. And we say, well, what's the big deal? Everybody knew where Jesus was. I mean, you just look for the biggest crowd, and Jesus was there in the middle of it. But the problem was, was, was you know, if, if the religious leaders come in and break up this crowd and grab Jesus, they're going to have a riot on their hands. They need to get Jesus when he's isolated, when he's alone, when nobody else is around. So in verse 15, Judas asks, he says, And what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. 30, not, not worth very much, really. I mean, some people say, well, if you actually took the weight of the silver, it would only be worth maybe $600 in, our, in today's day and age. But the coins were actually probably more like a day's wage. So each one, I mean, it probably factored into me maybe three, $4,000 that they gave him to turn Jesus over. He says, so they counted out 30 pieces of silver. And then verse 16, from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to do what? To hand him over. To hand him over. What an absurd statement that is. I'm going to hand Jesus over. I'm going to hand the Messiah over. As if I have any control over him at all. As if I have any uh, control over the outcome of this situation. I, Judas, am going to hand Jesus over over he's gonna gonna hand him over to these people and i'm thinking like judas didn't you remember the storm you're out of the sea jesus spoke to the storm and it stopped remember lazarus lazarus was dead in the tomb for four days and he's like roll the stone away and even his family's like no 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 just leave him in there you know because it smelled bad and, and they roll the stone away and jesus called lazarus from the dead didn't he remember when he took the mud and he put it on the blind man's eyes and the blind man could see again? And you think, Judas, that you have what it takes to hand Jesus over? But we're almost as guilty sometimes. How do we pray? How do we, how do we treat God? Often, don't we just kind of pray, kind of like to manipulate God? You ever say something like, God, if you do this, then I'll do that. God, if you answer my prayer, well, I'll never sin again, you know? Or, or like, if you do this for me, I'll be the best person. I'll go to church every week, and, and maybe you go once or twice, and then that's it. I mean, because we're trying to, like, bargain with God. We're trying to manipulate something so we can get what we want. We're like, you know, we, we want this God that we can just kind of take him out of our pocket when we want him. We're like, God, I need you, but don't come on spring break with me. <laughs> 
but I need you for the test when I get back. You know, I'll need you then, but not now. Don't come on this business trip with me, but I'll need you when it's ready to close the deal. And Judas thinks that he can hand Jesus over. He's about to learn the hard way, though. Listen to this, that God's will, God's hand cannot be forced, and his will cannot be stopped. God's hand cannot be forced. So why did, Jesus, uh, why did Judas do this? He wanted to force Jesus' hand. I mean, because when we look at Judas, like, I assume that he, he didn't really just want Jesus to die. When we look at him and all that we can learn about him from Scripture, what it kind of seems like was that Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand. That he was like, you know what, Jesus, you're not going quick enough. So if I get you arrested... Maybe you'll stand up for yourself. Maybe you'll tell them that you are the Messiah. Maybe you'll prove that you're the Messiah, and we'll get this whole thing rolling in the right direction. He figured Jesus isn't going to let anything bad happen to him. We'll just get this thing going. So here comes Passover. And Judas hears that Jesus is going to be going to the garden that night with his disciples. So Judas sneaks off, and he, and he, and he tells the religious leaders, that, hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to kiss the one. Make sure you bring soldiers because you're going to need them. And I'm, you're only going to need one chance at this. I'm going to go up. It's going to be dark out, so you might not recognize him. But I'll kiss him on the cheek. And once I do, you guys pounce on him. And you'll get him. I'm going to hand him over to you. Did you. Have you ever thought about this? You can't send the way Judas send. You'll never have that opportunity to, to, to literally hand Jesus over to someone like that. But here's Judas, and, and, and he's, he's planning this. And then Jesus gets arrested, and the disciples, his followers, all flee. Matthew 27. In verse 1, it says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. Executed. That wasn't part of the plan. I mean, Judas wanted to, to get him in there, and then, and then maybe they would figure out, oh, this really is the Messiah. Maybe Jesus will stand up for himself. But the religious leaders, they had a different plan all along. They tried to figure out, how can we get him executed? That was their big plan. So they bound him, led him away, and they did what? Handed him over to Pilate, the governor. They handed him over to the Romans. Judas's plan just fell apart. He wanted to turn them over to the Jews, See, because he knew that the, the religious leaders, they didn't have the power to execute Jesus. They couldn't kill him. But as soon as the Jews got him, they turned him over to Rome because Rome had the power to execute him. So, so Judas's plan is falling apart. And then in, in verse 3 of Matthew 27, it says, When Judas, who betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver. He brought it back. He threw it at their feet. He brought it back to the chief priests and the elders. He says, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. This was something that Judas didn't feel like he could live with anymore. He's like, I betrayed the one that, that I believed was the Messiah. I tried to make things happen. I tried to force God's plan. I tried to force my plan, rather, and it didn't work and he went and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, listen to how, how hypocritical this is. It is against the law to put this into the treasury. Think about that for a minute. 
Here you are paying someone to turn someone over. You're trying to illegally condemn him to death without a trial. And now you're concerned about putting the money into the treasury that you gave them to begin with. It's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Because, you know, people would visit Jerusalem and then they would die and they didn't have anywhere to put them. So here we'll put the foreigners there. And that's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. When Matthew wrote this, he was writing it to people who knew where this place was. They were still alive. This was in the recent history. They knew that what he was saying was true. So Jesus was, was tried. He was crucified. He dies. And Judas, he, tr- he tried to, to force his own will. And as a result, he became an accidental player in your salvation. See, God's hand can't be forced. God's will can't be stopped. God's hand can't be forced. And oftentimes our journey as a follower of Christ starts out like, I have a plan and I'm hanging on to it. I got an idea of where my life should go, who I should marry, what I should be, what I should go to school for. I know what I should do. This is my will and I'm hanging on to it. Now God help me. Help me do this will. And I have a will. And if my will and God's will is not the same, well then my will be done. Not thy will be done. My will be done. But often there will be this conflict. And it's something that you feel inside. And you feel that, that this is what I've wanted all of my life. This is the direction that I've wanted to go all of my life. But inside we start feeling, feeling a conflict. You feel that, that maybe I should stay and not go, or maybe I should go and not stay, or, or maybe I should walk away from this, or maybe I should walk towards this, or maybe I should stop pursuing this, or maybe I should start pursuing that. We feel this, this conflict, and we're like, but that's not my will. And it's this war that's inside, because we're not, we're not properly synced up with God. We're not properly fully following Jesus. And then there's that choice. Do I walk away from this great opportunity? Do I walk away from this this dream person? You might be like, well, you know what? Anybody can be a Christian, but not everybody can be that cute. You know, so I gotta I gotta go and take my chances with this. I can't walk away from this person. I can't walk away from this job offer. I can't walk away from this situation. But sometimes there's a conflict. And, and we can feel like it's, it's a death because it's something that's been with us for so long. I've always wanted to do this, and now I feel like there's a conflict with what I've wanted to do. But it's a defining moment in our life. It's, it's when we decide and define who we really are. Are we really just putting my will be done? Or is it thy will be done, God's will be done? Are we, are we pursuing God's will above our own? Or is it my way or the highway? And in those times that we choose to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit is when we start moving from consumer to follower. From consumer to follower. From someone who just says, it's all about me, what's in it for me, to how can I serve and how can I follow you. It's when our little bit of faith intersects God's faithfulness to us. Now, a real follower of Christ, a real follower of Jesus, this is kind of like their motto. It's, I want what you want more than what I want. 
I want what Jesus wants more than what I want. But that's a hard thing to say, isn't it? Because we, we all want things. So, so what I, we're going to do, I'm going to give you a little bit of wiggle room, okay? Go ahead and say thank you. Okay, two people. The rest of you, you'll be thankful in a minute. Because we'll give you a little bit of wiggle room and say, I want to want what you want more than what I want. I don't really want what you want more, but, but I want to want it. Because at least, at least we're, we're halfway there. At least we're saying, okay, you know what? I really want this new boat more than, more than this other thing, more than giving money to serve God or whatever. But, but, I really want, but I want to want what you want more than what I want. I'll go halfway. And, and sometimes we look around, we see people that are followers of Christ, and they make these incredible sacrifices. And we're like, man, that's amazing. I can't do that, but I want to want what they want. I want to serve God like that. And when you find yourself in these situations where you feel like, like your will and God's will are colliding, that I would encourage you to, to take a moment to pray something like, God, I really want to do my own thing. But I want to want what you want. I don't want it, but I want to want it. And I guarantee that's, that's a prayer that God will begin to answer in your life. And that's the beginning. That's the first step of turning from, from being a consumer into a follower. Because it's better to choose God's will than trying to impose your own will on God. Because here's the thing. Judas tried to impose his will on Jesus, and Jesus' will still happened. Jesus' will was not thwarted. His hand was not forced. We look at Judas like, like, oh, this is a horrible thing he did. And it was a horrible thing. But Jesus is the one that chose to go to the cross. Judas didn't send him there. We can't force God's will. Sometimes God says no to us. Sometimes we're like, God, I want this, I want this. And God just quite frankly says, nope, it's not for you, not the right time. And some people, and then we turn around and say, why doesn't God answer my prayers? No, he, he did. <laughs> he just said, no, I don't want you to have that. Or I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to pursue that. And in those times, I found that whenever, whenever I try to break down a door that God has closed, I end up regretting it. And whenever I don't go through a door that God has opened, I end up regretting that as well. So let's choose not to be a consumer, but let's be a follower. His will can't be forced Anyway, let's yield our will to his. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for, for your love and your mercy to us, your goodness. And we ask you to help us to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let us ask ourselves, am I following? And let us actually follow you. Let's not just be in it for, for what's in it for me, but let's be a true follower. And maybe some of you here don't know Christ or you've never, never made that step to follow. My encouragement is Jesus' invitation is open for each of you to follow, to start, to start following him. And God's word says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you say that with your mouth, that you'll be saved. So I would encourage you to take that step of faith to say, I'm going to put my faith and trust in Jesus and follow him from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can go and visit us at www.thrive.church. If you're ever in the area, we'd like to invite you to come and join us. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, we encourage you to leave a rating, review, share with your friends and family. Until next time, may you grow deeper in God's word each day.